0: That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by Buckmore Park, the home of British karting, and the patrons of Missed Apex. Go to patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex to support us. This episode is called Deal Done. I'm your host, Richard Spanners-Ready,
2: and I'm joined by Matt to Rumpets. How was your father's day, Matt? Oh, uh, it was actually pretty entertaining. Um, As you know, one of the best races normally of the year was on yesterday and today. And As is my habit, I, I sort of leave it on into the night so that I can wake up and watch the finish. And I woke up. And much like the start of a horror film, my entire family was gone. Early in the morning, like I wake up, my wife not there, my child not there. However, the preparations for making breakfast were absolutely in place in the kitchen. I thought, well, okay, I have a choice here. I can either be worried or watch the end of the race. So I guess we all know how that turned out.
1: Well, good for you. We went for a family brunch, something my wife particularly enjoys doing. We went to Ikea. To shop for furniture something my wife particularly enjoys doing and then we spent the afternoon building ikea furniture and helping redecorate the house something my wife particularly enjoys doing let's see if there was any more luck from our other producer chris rainbow sparkle stevens how's it going chris
3: yeah yeah good good but uh, not done a lot for father's day unfortunately have you I, forgotten
1: uh... father's day after forgetting mother's day as well no,
3: I didn't. I didn't forget. It's just that I, I don't really get uh, too many opportunities to see my dad. And I'm actually I'm classing this as being sick at the moment because I have an ulcer in my mouth. So I guess I am sitting through the pain to show my love for my dad or something. I don't know. It hurts to talk, so it's a good job I don't have to do that for the next hour.
1: Wow, too much information. No wonder 93 people signed a petition to not have you on the show anymore.
2: Ew. That's like, oh, I stubbed my toe. Look at how brave I am to be on the show. You have got to be kidding me. If the ulcer isn't like in an internal organ, I refuse to <laughs> I refuse to accept it as illness.
1: Guys, I'll take this opportunity to remind you we are an independent podcast supported by you, the listener. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here so you can play this in the background or at work. We've also got, on the call, our video editor. Thanks for all the fine pictures. Thanks for framing this, this beautiful face, Aussie Steve Amy, How's it going, Steve? It's going well, thanks, guys. How are you going? Good evening, morning and afternoon, wherever you come from. Good day to you, mate. You're joining us at five o'clock in the morning. You must have had a good Father's Day. You've got about 18
4: kids. Well, I'm not quite 18, and Father's Day doesn't happen till September here, so... No, I had no Father's Day, but I did have a big family lunch here, though, which was a lot of fun. Stupid Aussies, always doing everything wrong. Let's talk about the Big Dirty News.
1: Big Dirty News. I like this, guys. When it's not a race weekend and we don't have the pressure of capturing all the action like we've had in Monaco hmm, and Canada. <sighs> The new show does give us a little bit of time to reflect. And something we've been meaning to catch up on for a little while, Chris, is the virtual safety car. Now, we caught wind of this a little while ago that there was an advantage to be gained under the virtual safety car. I think we covered the pit lane advantage, um, as was detailed in Australia when Vettel managed to get ahead of Hamilton. But there's more advantage that you can be gained off the track, and I think they're going to do something about it.
3: Yeah, Vettel kind of admitted a few races ago that you can basically cheat the VSC system by taking shorter lines. Um, and so you end up with the same kind of uh, earliest time of arrival. It's a delta time that they have to reach, which is in sort of 50 meter um, loops at the moment. Um, and yeah, you can cheat the system, which sounds a bit odd. I mean, the gain is kind of minuscule. It's like a, a tenth per lap. But So from a safety point of view, it's not really an issue, but it's a kind of sporting um, issue. And what I don't understand is why they don't just stick everyone on the speed limiter and and have done with it.
1: Now, Matt, this is interesting. Now, this is distinct to what you were talking about and, and what you identified, I think, earlier than just about anyone I'd heard on the internet about that Australian Grand Prix where Vettel gained an advantage basically because the virtual safety guard didn't apply. What was it? Was it from the entry of the pit lane to the speed limiter area of the pit lane.
2: Uh yeah. In fact, the entire pit lane, the those rules don't apply until you hit the safety car line on the way out of the pit lane. So wherever the limiter is not required to be engaged, you're not restricted in terms of the speed that you run the car.
1: Yeah, but Chris, if you um if you just had the pit lane speed limiter on, wouldn't the cars then have to basically go from apex to apex in the shortest possible amount of of space so they couldn't take the normal racing lines they really need to v the corners doesn't it make more sense to just have an arrival delta in fact i'm a bit confused explain it to me a bit more is that what they've got now they've got a a certain time in which to cover each sector
3: yes so overall the lap time has to increase by 30 percent so every 50 meters you have an earliest time of arrival so you have to have taken a certain amount of time to get from one loop to the next but all i know is every other racing series that i watch uses the pit lane speed limiter f2 does it and uh, fe does it and we don't have too many issues with it
1: well it means you couldn't warm up your tires though doesn't it because if you're on the the speed limiter the pit lane limiter you couldn't zigzag or weave at all because essentially the yeah. car behind you would catch up
3: no you what well, you could do you could do still because I mean they what well, they do it in other series as well still, but also doesn't that create a, a nice bit of tension in the race as well that their tires aren't going to be fully up to temperature when they go green again
1: well, this is it, Hansink says tyres would get too cold with pit limiter, yeah, I have to admit i'm I'm not exactly sure Matt what Sebastian Vettel was saying, C- "Can you see my confusion? Surely, taking the shortest possible line only works if you're on a speed limit. That doesn't work with just the normal sector to sector delta."
2: Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about it, and as a as a timed thing, um because it's an average over a set distance, you don't have to run it all at exactly the same speed. So you can go very fast for the first part and very slow for the second part or vice versa. You could go slow, fast, fast, slow. And I suspect that most of them have a pattern that they like to follow that, as we've been discussing, helps keep the car and the tires and the brakes as close to the temperatures that that are optimal as is possible under those restrictions. But if it's a flat out, if it's a flat out, Um, minimum time. I'm not sure how, how this system can really be cheated because if you, if you are under the minimum time, then, then you will, you will get dinged for going too fast.
1: Steve, how's our chat room getting on there? The chat room that you can join by going to YouTube and searching missed apex podcast. And then if you click subscribe and that little bell, you'll get a notification every time you go live. And if you watch it on your phone, you can watch us in the top bit. And then you've got the live chat in the bottom. And what are they saying in that said live chat there, Steve?
4: Okay. For this part, they've uh, been giving Chris stick about his bookshelf.
1: The boiler is missing now from the shot, though. At least we've removed the boiler. I've noticed that. It's a brand new camera position.
4: <laughs> oh, good boy. Um, at EMH2212 I said that Chris is the Darren Brown of shelving-related camera work. <laughs> Which I think is just perfect. And apart from that, they've been talking about the tyre issue. And and Ketanath Ilya, Ilya, I'm not sure whether that's an I or an L. I think it's an I. I I Ilya said, how about using some racing tyres compared to the show business Pirelli rubber? And I think that's right. That would fix all the tyre stuff altogether. I think Pirelli have got to, uh, well, they've got to change the way they approach tyres. Hey,
1: tell you what. Let's talk about tyres then, Matt
4: Trumpets. Pirelli have been blamed
1: a lot for the tyres not doing exactly what we expect. Can we be fair? Can we say in Monaco, they thought, well, here's a track where not a lot happens. Let's bring our softest possible tyre so that A, they can hammer it, but B, they've got to change lots. We've been a little unfair on Pirelli, aren't they? Aren't they trying to fill a very tight brief as well as they can?
2: A very tight and ever changing brief. Every year, what they're asked to deliver uh, is different. I think what's important to focus on as far as these tires are, this is one of the three circuits where we will see the uh, thinner tires because it has new tarmac. And uh, the tires are pretty much everybody's favorite. I think it's the um, soft, the supers, and the ultras. So, so, so we're in the wheelhouse of tires that, that the teams they have the best handle on. But what's absolutely getting overlooked at the moment is the fact that none of these teams have raced here in years and years and years and years and years. And And that alone is is raising the uh, grim specter or exciting possibility, depending upon who you support, that we will see a very unusual result with all sorts of people getting all kinds of things wrong because they don't have the data to make their normal choices.
1: Now, the last time we saw this nearly exact situation, Chris, was a new track surface in Barcelona that people did not have access to. And by the way, Matt was referring to Paul Ricard, which is the French Grand Prix that's coming up next, in case anyone missed that. So, Chris, we've got an unfamiliar surface and brackets, an unfamiliar track, and we've got these thinner tyres again, which we last saw in Barcelona and which we will only see again at Paul Ricard and at Silverstone.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Of course, some of the teams have done some tyre testing uh, at Paul Ricard over the last couple of years. Um, so a, th- a couple of the teams, um, McLaren and I think Mercedes, Ferrari and, and Red Bull uh, are the, the names that spring to mind as people who have done tyre testing at Paul Ricard uh, lately. Um, not that they're going to get a huge amount of um, data and information from that. You know, Certainly, they probably won't be able to start building their setups um, off of it. But of course, you know, The last time we saw this thinner tread tire, Mercedes was untouchable. And uh, I think we could be in for quite a a similar
1: uh, result in Paul Ricard. Yeah, if they can nail that qualifying down. Uh, Matt, what do you vote? You're shaking your head. And then after that, tell me, do you vote we continue talking about Paul Ricard or on with the news?
2: Well, if we're going to talk about the news, we're going to talk about the news. But if you will consult your notes, you'll notice that I dropped a track layout in there. And I think if you look at it, you would agree that it may not be the sort that necessarily favors Mercedes. That's just my personal opinion.
1: Okay, so I'm looking at at the picture, and are we saying... Because I'll be honest with you, my memory of Paul Ricard and Manicoa is quite sketchy. Yes, I did watch all those races. It was a long time ago. I've slept several times since then and had several whiskies. But uh, what do you expect from this track, and is it the same track that we saw the last time uh, there was Grand Prix cars here in Anger?
2: No, they have made some changes. I think the big thing is they have the painted uh, friction material runoff, which I don't know if we've ever seen on a Formula One track before. It's been raced. Yeah, Stevens, have we? Uh, I
3: I don't think so, but the thing... (sighs) This is this is one of the reasons I was I was a bit miffed that we were going back to to Paul Ricard, and it is the mountains of runoff area that lines that entire circuit, and that even that that tire shredding runoff bit, that's only like right at the edge, the red painted stuff you see, not the blue painted stuff, and you have plenty and plenty and plenty of the blue runoff before you even get to the red stuff that's supposed to shred the tires into pieces.
2: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I look at in particular that strikes me uh is is this uh this turn seven eight nine complex which is very reminiscent of the uh, turn is it two three four in china it's a big decreasing radius where you start out at an incredibly high speed you drop from 343 kilometers all the way down to 171 Uh, and i just i don't know there's a couple of very very twisty bits that i think will challenge mercedes given their struggles with the rear tires and their current struggles with their aero relative to ferrari and red bull
3: there are some good high speed uh bits in there and that that last sector is so technical the corners are so uh yeah. long so if they you know they hit the sweet spot i, I think they'll be pretty <laughs> rapid uh around there um unfortunately i don't think it's going to make for much great racing
1: so let's have uh, a look here i'm looking at the track layout and so this red tarmac is actually meant to shred their tyres. What does the blue runoff area do? Nothing. That's just penalty free. It's just normal runoff. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's quite interesting in itself. I mean, I would love to just see a strip of grass or a strip of really penalizing surface right at the edge of the track limit. So you've got to really think about whether you want to put your tyres off that racing circuit or not. But then if you go beyond that or if that penalizes you, you then have Tarmac or a really grippy surface to make it safe. That seems like such an obvious solution. I don't know why no one's kind of gone for that. Oh, because it's not safe, apparently. So it's not just, it's not safe just to have an area of lower grip track that doesn't give you performance. Therefore, there's no advantage for going off the track, yet there's a lot of runoff to be safe. This seems like the perfect scenario here. Austin, Abu Dhabi, they all have the room to do that. Yeah, but
3: it's, it's awful because you just get people not being penalized for mistakes at
1: all what i'm trying to say to you is you you don't get penalized in that you don't crash into a wall but you do get penalized in that you can't race optimally because you've got a yard and a half of low grip surface
3: okay yeah i i i I see that point but you know it's it's still going um, unpunished you know those mistakes tend to be yeah, they'll they'll cost you maybe half a second or something, and even then, probably won't cost you a position.
1: All right, then, Chris. What's the biggest stopper for good racing here? Is it is it just a narrow track, or is it like Mexico where you've got very slow sections that guarantee that the cars are spaced out on the biggest straights?
3: I think the 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 biggest problem is is it's I mean it's still the cars. The cars seriously cannot kind of follow each other, and that last sector in particular is just going to exacerbate that issue so so much. There's no way they're going to be able to get anywhere near each other in such long technical corners. And um, the best shot will probably you know be down that back straight into the uh chicane, which actually cuts that straight in two. But even then I don't think that's going to be particularly long enough to uh to to create an amazing overtaking opportunity. The biggest issue I have with Paul Ricard is that when I I watch races there, I don't know where they're going. Because there's 57 different track configurations of that place, I literally have no idea which way they're turning next, even by the end of the race. it's I hate watching it. I'm so annoyed we're going back here.
1: Uh, uh, Matt, it's not all doom and gloom, though, is it? I mean, that final section, section looks like a bit of fun.
2: Oh, yeah. From a technical point of view, the, the last sector is incredibly challenging with uh, decreasing radius turns. And, and a lot of fairly heavy braking events and, and, and double apex turns too, uh, where you have different radii for different parts of the, the apexes, apices. I don't know. Take your pick. Um, and, and you have some really good braking events too. Um, you have two very slow speed corners as well. Uh, turn 12 and turn three, I believe both are, are very, very slow speed. And then you have these nice big long, I mean, it's going to test the, the full setup of the car, but I I personally, if I look at that track, I think it's not necessarily a Mercedes-friendly track uh, relative to Red Bull or Ferrari. It's a, it's a great testing venue because of
3: that, because it's got a bit of everything in there. It's a great testing facility. It's like Suzuka, you know, and I'm pretty sure qualifying will be great to watch. You know, when, when you unleash these cars at full speed, they'll be amazing. But as a racing spectacle, I think it's going to flop.
1: Steve, chat room excited about Paul Ricard?
4: Uh, they're pretty mixed about it. Um, the thing that they're most uh, impressed about Paul Ricard is the colourfulness and the red and blue runoff areas. They reckon it's a bit like the Matrix. Do you take the red or the blue? And do you we- get thrown out if hang you go on on the w- Which
1: is the one where you get married and have kids and which is the one where you can play golf whenever you want and ride motorbikes?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I wish life were that easy. Um, Craig Craig Alderson said that uh, he expects that when Stroll falls off the circuit at Paul Ricard, it'll be it, he'll disappear entirely because the martini strips are the same colour. We won't be able to see where he is, <laughs> and no one will care. <laughs> That's right. And, and Hansickler says uh, he really just wants to see the uh, red tire shredder surface at work at Paul Ricard. Yeah, it'll be Which interesting I, to see... I'd if, like to see that too.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that really does have an effect. Now, speaking of stroll there, Trumpets, looking at the tyre selection, Williams have done this again, this thing where they only have a single tyre of a thing, and that I can't see any logic at all in having one tyre. So they've got one soft, two super soft, and the rest are all ultra softs. But I just don't understand, what is the point in having that one soft, because surely any tire that's going to be a good race tire, you're going to want to run in practice. And if they run it in practice, they don't have it for the race. So what, what is the point?
2: You're right. No one with any sense, like say Hamilton or Vettel or Gasly or Magnuson or even Leclerc would just take a single soft tire.
1: Okay, so they've all got that. Why are they doing that? Is it just the case of no one thinks that the soft is going to be of any good, but they're mandated to bring at least one?
2: No, I I don't know. That there. That might be part of it. Uh, My personal thing would be if you're a team, you're going to bring whatever tire you load up on is either the tire you think you know you're going to use the most or the tire that you'd like to spend the most time trying to understand. So it may be that the soft tire is hard enough and they have enough experience with it that they're not really fussed. They don't feel like they need an extra set to run in a practice and gather data with. They have a good idea of what it'll do. They'll use it in the race if they need it. But really, they would rather spend more time looking at the super soft or, as you look at most people, the ultra soft is going to be the qualifying tire and likely uh, quite possibly the race start tire, too. So they're going to spend most of their time gathering data on that. And again, these are the thinner tires and it's a new track. And that's probably why you're seeing these sorts of ratios.
1: Sir, sir, I have a follow up question. Okay, then. You've caught me out on the stroll one. Perhaps I should have used the Sergei Sorotkin example, where he has two yellow soft tyres, but he only has a single red super soft, which I fancy is going to be the the tyre that does the most laps in the race. So aren't aren't they leaving themselves vulnerable with Sergei Sorotkin if they've only got one red super soft? That they're essentially saying that they qualify on Ultrasofts, which Williams are bound to do, Then when it gets to the race, they either use a tyre that they've never used before, as in the Red Super Soft, or they practice with the Red Super Super Soft and they've only got a used Super Soft to go to. Or are they saying they definitely have to go to the hardest tyre? Because that seems like a hell of a gamble, saying that they have to go Ultra Soft and then onto the hardest compound.
2: Yeah, your thesis is very well drawn, uh, but ignores entirely the fact that they both, of course, drive for the same team. So what you will likely see Uh is Stroll running a super soft at some point, then Sorotkin running a soft at some point, and then the data will be shared and the choices will be made. And so you'll have a scrubbed. uh, So Soratkin will have a scrubbed soft and, uh, and and a new super soft available and vice versa. Uh, but as we all know, with when it comes to Williams, it's irrelevant. They're going to have nine pit stops and go through every single tire they have left anyway. <laughs> Sparkles.
3: Usually, like nine times out of ten, the discrepancies you see, you know, b- between the top teams in particular, are mainly about what tire they run in practice. Usually, by the time you get to the race, they have the same number of each although every once in a while you do get a nice little discrepancy where a red bull will have an extra set of of new super softs and that's that's quite exciting
2: yeah but that's usually because one of them broke down in qualifying or hit something or <laughs> something, <laughs> and um has extra tires available yes yeah, sometimes
1: I tell you what we sneaked into the race preview which we actually did before the canadian grand prix as well i don't mind at all but now let's cover some dirty news. Now then, here's the question that I'm going to ask you listeners. Should you trust Mist Apex Podcast when we say we understand a thing? Now then, actually, in the past, we have revealed little gems. We have dropped little nuggets of information as we've got them, but we tend to kind of put them in a little bit subtly and not make a song and dance of it. However, we did tweet and write an article this week that said that Miss Apex Podcast understands that a deal has been done between Red Bull and Honda. And we believe that that deal was done at Monaco with the caveat that they could pull out if the upgrade at the Canadian Grand Prix for Honda wasn't up to scratch. So should you believe Miss Apex Podcast, Matt? Well, no. You should be sceptical of what we say, but hopefully... Over time, we can build a reputation where if we tell you we understand something, that you then come to trust that. We wouldn't just flippantly say it, would we, Matt?
2: No, we would certainly not say it if we didn't have at least a fairly reliable source that we trusted. But even then, you know, sources can be wrong too. So, as we used to like to say back in the 80s with strategic arms agreements, you know, trust but verify. But that said, the more you look at the Red Bull Honda, Renault situation, the more absolute sense it makes. And, you know, uh, they did very well in Canada, did Gasly. Uh, Had he not had his um, issue uh, with the old engine in qualifying, I think they would have utterly been in the points. Had Hartley not had his issue with um, whoever ran him off the road. Stroll. Yeah, uh, that's what I thought. Uh, I believe he probably would have had a very good chance at finishing in the points as well. And by most accounts that I read, they were pretty much on a par, power-wise, with Renault.
1: Yeah, now hang on. Interestingly, Chris, Gasly didn't end up running that new upgraded Honda engine, if if I'm correct. Only Hartley had the new engine for the race, but unfortunately he ended up getting wiped out.
3: Uh, If I remember rightly... Uh, yeah, I think that's correct. Although I uh, I wasn't uh paying
1: too much attention to the Comfrey that weekend because I was in Zurich. That's that that's fine. But let me then tell you. Here we go. We're going to use the same phrase again. Missed Apex Podcast understands that the Honda power unit is now at the same power as Renault. Matt.
2: Yeah, and I believe what happened was in qualifying he ran the old engine, but they switched back to a new spec engine. Ah, for the race. Uh, For the race, because he finished so poorly in qualifying, it wasn't much of a penalty, and that gives him a new engine in the... um, Yeah. Gives him a new engine and not taking a penalty in France, which he was very concerned about.
1: But wow, I mean, Chris, if, if this is all panning out how we're saying it, and indeed the Honda power unit is now comparable to Renault, firstly, ooh, what are Renault doing letting themselves get caught up by Honda? But secondly, Red Bull might have played an absolute blinder here by basically giving honda a free pass to do whatever they want take the lead in engine car integration with toro rosso knowing it's not going to affect them knowing that it's away from the media spotlight and we've got no real way of judging it and then assessing that power in a direct comparison to renault and then being able to jump at the right time
3: oh yeah 100 percent. it was a very good strategic move from them Um, but they have to remember that they have to apply the same working environment that Toro Rosso have given them. So they can't suddenly come in and, and start saying, no, you can't do this because that's why McLaren never got anywhere with Honda. They need to provide them that space just as much as Toro Rosso did.
4: Okay. The chat room are uh, onto this in a fairly big way. Um, <clears throat> they're talking about your uh, great announcement here, Spanners. And Robert Sims says, we may not be right, but we're always first. I've heard that somewhere else before, I think. Get in. And Daniel <laughs> And Daniel Gout has got a rumour for us. He says that the rumour is that in Austria Honda and Rick are going to be re-signing and that'll be confirmed. Ooh, sparkles. Daniel Ricardo re signing with Red Bull along with
1: the Honda announcement. Now a lot of people were wondering what is Ricardo waiting for. I kind of had sensed. That, if they were leaving Renault, Ricardo might be more likely to leave, but is it a case that 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 Daniel Ricardo has seen the potential of Honda and he was waiting for Honda to be signed
3: i th- I think he wanted to see what was on the table you know first, not necessarily if they go one way, I'm going to go this way, but to at least see what was was out there. It makes complete sense for Ricardo he was never going to walk into Sebastian Vettel or Lewis Hamilton's team and actually end up doing anywhere near as well as he probably could have done um with with red bull to be honest um because he can at least you know match uh max and will be allowed to um what i find really fascinating about this whole thing is that you know (laughs) the, the the renault upgrades didn't work too well for red bull but that's red bull's issue and not not renault's really um because it worked great for McLaren and, and the Renault Works team.
2: Yeah, well, my, my question, maybe, um as I'm sat here trying to remember a German word, uh, maybe goes a bit deeper, uh, in the sense that Ricciardo really has no place to go. And I think the Honda certainly, at this point, offers more potential than does the Renault. And and we can even see it, like the problems they're already running into because Renault is now the works team. Red Bull has, has made a very big deal about the 2021 power unit regulations because unlike the aerodynamic side, they could never be bothered to actually build their very own engine and get as good at it as people like Mercedes and Ferrari or even Renault uh, at a push. And so they felt vulnerable and that their answer to that was to make was to dumb down the power regulations to the point where they felt like they could purchase a solution that would leave them equal with the other engine manufacturers and and they have done this they have achieved this however one wonders kind of like mclaren switching to renault what exactly is going to happen if in the next 2 to 3 years of racing honda actually develops the kind of power unit that puts them on a par with mercedes and ferrari one wonders if they might not regret a bit um uh, being so forceful about getting exactly what they want by throwing every last toy out of that pram yeah, yeah that, i mean bring up.
1: yeah yeah definitely and the the way that mclaren responded to honda increasingly not performing in that perhaps less than synergistic relationship is definitely something for major uh, dissection. Uh Quickly, though, that I did notice there in the chat room, people are saying that uh, Daniel Ricciardo can't match Max Verstappen on pace, Chris. Um, yes. But I, I have to say, say I was reminded of something when I was watching the Portugal-Spain match. Now, I've not been watching uh, a football a lot in the last six years, but now my son is into it. He's been watching it. and And to see Cristiano Ronaldo suddenly kind of taking on a real team leader role and just looking like a talisman. Now, okay, fair enough. I've been out of the loop for a while, but I, I remember him as a kid at Manchester United. And he he reminded me so much now of what Verstappen is because he used to go in there with all those tricks and skills and you go, this guy is amazing. Like, what, he's doing things no one else is doing. But there was no final ball. Uh, yes, he could get those free kicks in, but he was losing possession. And overall, he was a liability. So we're seeing that with Max Verstappen now. So is Max Verstappen the Ronaldo of, oh God, when was it, like 2010? uh, Or is Max Verstappen always going to be this crash kid?
3: Uh, I couldn't possibly answer that in a football uh, football term because I don't, I do not watch football. I have watched in my entire life three football matches uh, because I hate it with a passion. But to answer your question in a non football, Uh, sense no max will i think develop at some point it's the thing you see with a lot of uh, young drivers they come in they throw the car at the barrier and the scenery a little bit um but eventually they calm down they know when to to take the right risks that's why it's always so refreshing to see like uh, an ocon come in who is uh, quite an old head on young shoulders
1: okay but If you look at championship fights, it's all very well looking great in the third or fourth best car. If you look at championship fights, last year, in my opinion, Sebastian Vettel threw it away with hasty driving manoeuvres. So in those clutch situations like Singapore and Baku, he threw it away. And it doesn't take many of those Verstappen-like moments that he's had this season to throw away a championship. Daniel Ricciardo, though... When it comes to overtaking, he already has that risk and reward right. So often he gets that risk and reward correct. If Max Verstappen has to then go out of his bubble to avoid the very harsh penalty in a title fight of wiping out your car even just once, even just twice, then isn't he going to lose everything that makes him the verstappen
3: Possibly, yeah. I mean, I felt the same way about Mark Marquez when he started to tame himself a little bit, a few years into his MotoGP career. But he's it's, it doesn't make him any less of an amazing uh, performer and athlete. You know, he's still going to be a He might lose everything that we associate him with. But that, that doesn't make him worse at what he is as a racing driver.
1: All right, Mr. Trumpets, then let's bring it to you. Uh, we've been talking about Renault, but let's go to Renault significantly because I'm a little bit concerned about the progress they haven't made. Obviously, from the 2014 beginning of the hybrid era, they're not blowing up every five minutes. They're not making Vettel get out and curse the car, have a tantrum, and go home. However, they've not bridged that gap up to the front two, but they have made a significant signing this week.
2: Uh, They have. They've uh, picked up one of Mercedes' former uh, head of engine integration, I believe, and I will scroll back up the page and tell you his name momentarily, Matthew Harman. And he's become their new deputy chief designer. But I will disagree with you uh, regarding progress. I, I think they've made quite a bit over the off season, and um, outside of maybe Haas, who always show the potential but don't always confirm it in the races, they have they have shown they're at the sharper end of the midfield. And on a good day, they're not running too terribly far off the pace of Red Bull, which of course is where McLaren thought they were going to be but are absolutely positively not at the moment
3: I think Renault will end up fourth in the constructors uh, championship this year you know they have that that more consistent basis than a lot of the other teams where they are just consistently you know running uh, top eight the interesting thing about um, signing Harmon on their team is that you know he's got a great experience in integrating two you know, parts that have to come together as in the engine with the, the the chassis and the transmission and actually integrating that together. Cause it's really only three teams that have to do that. Mercedes, Ferrari, and Renault and Renault seem to have been the ones who have struggled with that the most. Red Bull don't need to do it because they just take a, you know, they just take the engine of Renault and bung it in the back of their car. So the integration is probably what's going to be the big, big thing for them.
2: Yeah, you say that, and I would agree with you, except for, as we have seen from 2014 on, Renault, um, particularly because they're allied with Nissan, and actually, I actually believe or the company's merging, merging, and Carlos Ghosn has not been willing to spend the tremendously large amounts of money that the other manufacturers have been to be competitive. Their plan was to trickle their way year over year up to something that resembled competitiveness, and once they took on the works team proper, as they decided to do, I think we can see, you know, just look at the difference between last year's updates for Renault and this year's updates for Renault. Just look at the basic complexity of the car. I think they plan to be competitive.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
2: At the front end, I think if they spend the money, they can be competitive at the front end. But they are also decidedly spending the money to be competitive in a way that's not going to help out Red Bull in the slightest. Oh, I 100% agree with that. R-
3: Renault are here to work their way up the up field. I think they're a little bit behind the schedule they originally had planned when uh, they they announced their return into Formula One. um But yeah, I totally 100% see them moving forward and potentially even past Red Bull. At some point, maybe in the early stages of the Honda deal where they work um, everything out, if that does pan out the way we um, expect it to. Uh, But uh, it's, you know, it's working well for them.
1: Okay. Tell me about that Renault power unit upgrade then, Matt, because there was a lot of speculation as to whether Red Bull would actually get it for the Canadian Grand Prix, but there's a bit more to it.
2: Yeah. Well, the, the thing about it is the, the main part of the ingrade are the inlet trumpets, um, which, yeah, have to do with uh, bringing a, a, a better amount of air, a more precisely controlled amount of air into the, into the engine. But it was primarily a fuel upgrade. So these inlets ah. were designed to work with a particular specification of fuel. And of course, as we all know, because we listen to Matthew Carter, that uh, Red Bull and Renault do not have the same fuel suppliers. So they were never going to get the full use of that, even if they chose to implement it.
3: This makes no sense to me why you would go against the, the fuel supplier that your manufacturer recommends to you. I get it. You know, there's probably a financial aspect into it. You know, BP Castrol, it's a commercial decision. But do you know what's a really great commercial decision? Winning races, all right, and winning more races than what you would have been doing if you've been using the wrong fuel. Like McLaren's first year in the hybrid era was totally shock because they were losing a second a lap because they were using a different fuel to Mercedes and Force India, all right? It is just a, a wrong decision, even if they're doing all this extra dyno testing of their own with their own Uh, You know, the the fuel with the Renault engine, you should just go with what they
2: recommend because that's what it's built for. I think Stevens actually had an opinion there. I could be wrong.
1: Uh, First, (laughs) wow, let's celebrate with the following announcement. Hi guys, Spanners here. Just a note to say we've made the decision to move to Acast podcast hosting platform in order to monetize Missed Apex podcast through advertising. We took a straw poll of people in our Slack group and universally they told us that they expect podcasts such as ours to run adverts. So I do hope they're representative. However, if you disagree, please tell me at gmail.com. I read and reply to every email, but the aim will be to keep them unintrusive and relevant where possible. You may hear a pre-recorded pre-roll ad, or a host-read advert before the show, and or a similar period of advertising in the middle of the show. Going on Acast doesn't just mean ad revenue, although I won't lie, that is a big motivating factor. Acast hosts some of the very top podcasts, and they work hard to promote those podcasts within their network, will benefit from cross-promotion, and a professional Acast podcasting app that allows us to deliver premium content that can be purchased like any in-app purchase through your Google Play Store or your iOS store. Acast is not an open platform, so the fact they're willing to work with us is a great validation of the effort we've put into this show and a validation of how far we've come. The amount I've waffled on now just talking about this is much more then you'll get with the ads once they start coming in, which will be from next Sunday onwards. I hope you still continue to enjoy Mist Apex Podcast. Give me your feedback. Now, on with the show. Matt, let's talk about a ghost from Formula One past. It's only Martin Whitmarsh sticking his
2: oar in. Well, okay. As they say, one must consider the source. And as I understand it, though I do not live on your side of the pond, the uh, newspaper which printed this particular article is not always renowned as the most, well, I don't know. You've nicknamed it the Daily Fail, haven't you? Uh, The
1: Daily Mail is the most egregious, borderline evil publication there is available on shelves. However, is it relevant in this case? Uh, yeah, it
2: absolutely is. Um, but mostly because of, um, confirmation bias on my part, uh, going back to watching Grand Prix Driver when they couldn't deliver the floor on time and looking at Zach Brown and Eric Bouillet, I just got this sense that things were not right at McLaren. And the article, uh, which we're referencing, which you can just go find, I'm sure, is basically saying, alleging that the factory floor at McLaren, has reached out to Martin Whitmarsh and said, oh my goodness, please come save us. And goes on to allege that Martin is a good, close, and personal friend of the current um shareholder and majority, Mansour Oje. And they're bringing up in particular, I believe it's Eric Boulier, who currently has his oofs in the fire, as it were. Um, as he is now on the chopping block is the uh, technical chef at McLaren. But that Zach Brown is certainly not far behind him, although his expertise really is more in sponsorship and marketing than it is the running of an actual racing team.
1: Okay, so for those of us who are not familiar with the management structures of every team, uh, Martin Whitmarsh was the team principal, and recently he's been seen in the garages during the races. And I asked Joe Say, "What well, I said is this? Is this uh, Martin Whitmarsh coming back?" Uh, Joe. Joe didn't think so at the time, but this was a couple of weeks ago. Um, But as we currently stand, the team principal, the guy who does all the interviews and does all the press conferences, is Eric Boulier. And he has a reputation for being somewhat... Ooh, I you, you could easily disregard what he's saying and it wouldn't affect your enjoyment of the Grand Prix. And I, I think uh, from a personal point of view, a lot of what he said hasn't made sense or later on has appeared to be not true uh he's very much kind of the press officer what is zach brown's role
2: well uh, he is now he has officially been put in charge of all of the things starting this season and i believe that dates to a race or two ago and eric Bouillet is in charge of the actual day-to-day running uh, and technical issues with the race team itself and it's important to realize at this point That there's a McLaren race team, but there's also a McLaren road car division, and that this complicates things greatly in terms of resources, because at any given moment, there's only so much actual money available to make all of the things happen. And to my knowledge, those two are not entirely separate entities, although they're run as separate kingdoms underneath the banner of McLaren, as far as I know.
4: Okay, we've got some chat room uh, responses to some of that. Good. Uh, um, I'm just having a quick look through here. Um, the, everyone seems to think that your uh, moving to ads will be okay on this, and uh, someone has said that the missed Apex chat room will be sponsored by Petronas Fuels, so it makes a, everyone's got to go out and use, use it in every engine because they're paying <laughs> us to do it. Daniel Yacht says, no t- ads, please. And Dakota C says, only shelving ads, please. <laughs> Good shelving with well-organized books. <laughs> and uh, yes, and Hansink has a, a question, and, and that is in, in regards to Zach Brown and, and McLaren. He says, if McLaren have a sponsorship expert leading their team, as supposedly they do, where are the sponsors?
1: Yeah, it's pretty much a blank car. It's like we need to befriend, befriend some we need to befriend someone in McLaren-Matt and say, "Look, you got a lot of blank space. You know, generate some buzz, stick Mist Apex on there."
2: Yeah, well, it is a very good question, and I know that he has been um well, again, not to give away the game, but we've heard from people who know people who know people that that this is an issue that he is very much working on, but at the end of the day, Getting sponsors means getting results. And if you sponsor McLaren right now, the only real result you might get is Fernando Alonso pitching your product or a VIP day for your executives. They don't have the results. And so the question is, and what I'd really like to know, is much like their deal with Honda, is this this a question where they're charging rates for someone who wins races because they're mclaren dang it uh but really uh the environment has changed no one will pay those rates for those kind of results anymore and are they going to have to adapt and can they afford to adapt or is their entire business model predicated on selling sponsorship at a rate that the current environment will no longer bear
1: now some teams who shall remain unwilliams unnamed have figured out that you can just pay a billionaire to let their son drive. So, you know, maybe we should just uh, Latifi that subject there. Uh, uh Leave that subject there. Uh $200 million for a race seat. Are McLaren going to go the way of Williams? However, there's a lot of people who didn't like Whitmarsh and blamed him for the downfall of McLaren. Matt, you don't like that?
2: No, I don't like that at all because at the end of the day – Whatever it was he might have been trying to accomplish was very cleverly and subtly undercut by Ron Dennis, who was still in the company. He was never, in my opinion, never had the chance to make it his own team, to put his own stamp on it. He's talked about very well by the people under whom he worked. And I am going to also make the incredibly important point that he was the uh, person who ran the Formula One Teams Association which was the only counterweight to Bernie back in the day until, of course, uh, Red Bull uh, undid that whole deal by refusing to play ball anymore. So I think in a lot of ways, Whitmarsh uh, is, would be a very good guy and he would have the best interest not only of McLaren, but also of Formula One well on hand were he to come back.
1: Yeah, and I think what we might have forgotten is that before Martin Whitmarsh, did we hear a lot from team principals? I think he did a lot in a kind of fan engagement kind of way. He would sit and talk to the pundits. He would sit and give proper interviews. He would sit and talk during the race. I think Martin Whitmarsh made team principals accessible in a way we'd not maybe seen before. Um uh, And then, and you know, it, it was awkward at times, but now you've got Christian Horner who very much follows that model and you've got Toto Wolf in that kind of vein. To me, Martin Whit- Whitmarsh was missed when he left. Uh, so yeah, that's just my, my two pennies. Uh, I tell you what, why don't we move much to my chagrin slightly away from Formula One? Slightly, Chris, because Fernando Alonso, the two time F1 world champion was racing at the Le Mans 24 hours for Toyota. Why should I care?
3: Um, you, you should care a, a little. But you should care about Alonso doing this. Um, I personally don't care about the World Endurance Championship this year in particular. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of endurance racing in general, but I tried to watch, you know, wet the last couple of years. It's been quite good. But this year, I think it's really fallen flat on its feet with, you know, three, maybe even four of its classes that are completely dominated because of stupid
1: balance of performance rules that don't work. But Wait, 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 wait. Tell me about this balance of performance rules just quickly, because in the Le Mans I heard that basically the LMP2 cars and the non-hybrid cars were hobbled. And of course, we we should put that in the context of uh, Alonso was in a hybrid LMP1 car and there was no other team in that LMP1 hybrid class.
3: Yeah, because Porsche and Audi have gone away to go and do Formula E. Uh, they're not running a, an LMP1 program anymore. So they've tried to balance out the Toyotas with the privateers. They've tried to do the same in uh, the GT class as well, which again, hasn't really worked for, for different reasons though, because they, with the hybrids, the hybrids are just better. You know, they can produce more power. They can run longer on fuel. You're never really going to be able to get uh, an internal combustion engine car to be able to run the same you know, pace over a 24 hour race and and all the, the the real the real thing with the balance of performance is that even by if by some miracle a privateer team beats toyota there is a 99 percent chance that they'll get a penalty for it because they will have been deemed to have been to have provided incorrect data to do the balance of performance so toyota basically guaranteed this championship uh and they didn't they certainly didn't bring Alonso in to come second um so I but you should care about Alonso you should care about Alonso though in my opinion because he's embarking on an incredible driver's journey that I am really enjoying watching him uh do you know he's got two out of three of the triple crown now I really hope he's going back to to Indy in the near future cuz I just think it'd be great for him to to, to do really he's Lo- picked a really good time to
1: tackle Le Monde, though a really good time granted and yeah I've heard a lot about this triple crown um because we're only hearing about it because Alonzo is the one wanting to do it. Now, speaking to Joe Sayward about five Inside with Joe Saywards ago, and by the way, for Joe Sayward fans, we are going to be recording a chat with Joe tomorrow night. We're going to be on the live stream at 8pm UK time. Joe never rates Le Mans not as, as an event, but as a publicity machine because they have to pay for advertising to tell people who won the race. Well, that is certainly not the case this year. Say what you want about Alonso not having to defeat another team and having team orders, uh, whatever, I didn't watch the race. However, I know, as someone who never follows endurance racing and never follows Le Mans, I know who won the race. So, as far as they're concerned, that's an absolute win. They did the right thing to get their series promoted. Uh But Matt, this this whole... Is he going to go on and win indie? Is he going to go on and do hill climbing? Is he going to go and win uh, the national go-kart championships? These are all side quests. This is like a, a gamer who's bored with the main storyline and going off and unlocking, you know, like a kill streak, 15 kill streak, kill 18 people with a warthog. Hashtag Halo 3, best Halo ever. Um But if he was in a shot of winning the world championship in F1... He wouldn't be off doing these things. And if he'd already retired from F1, we wouldn't care.
2: Right. So I'm going to answer your question with the story, but I'm going to point out that Stevens entirely forgot to mention EOT, equivalence of technology, which was actually one of the major problems uh, with the Le Mans race, particularly between the uh, privateer or the, the um, naturally aspirated LMP1 cars versus the uh, Toyotas who were running the hybrids. And actually gets back to fuel flow, if you want to get all down to it, and mandated stent links, which, very complicated. But yeah, no, I don't think it worked out the way they intended for it to, to say the least. And yeah, it did seem a bit anti-competitive at times. That said, Jev LMP2, what a drive in his first stint. And we always can look to the GT categories to have some fun. Right. So, story is very simple. Clifford Brown, Miles Davis. Everybody knows Miles Davis. Nobody maybe knows Clifford Brown. Trumpet players, jazz trumpet players. Miles was the man until Clifford came to town. When Clifford came to town, no, I'm going somewhere. Just give me the next 35 seconds and I'll get there. I promise you, because I know one minute comments. 15 seconds. Uh, He spent two years not playing when Clifford first came to town because Clifford technically could play circles around Miles. And after watching him and listening to him for two years, uh, Miles went and recorded Kind of Blue, an entirely different kind of album, an entirely different kind of playing. What I'm basically saying here, sports fans, is Fernando Alonso realizes he's never going to beat Vettel's record. He's never going to beat Schumacher's record. He's never going to beat Hamilton's record. I think, yes, you're right. If he was in for a shot of a WDC, he would prefer the three to the two that he has because that's a big step. But relatively speaking, he's looked at the competitive landscape and said, I will never beat them because I'm not at these teams. So what can I do that will have a similar prestige? And he settled on this uh, Triple Crown, which is very exclusive. Very few people have ever pulled off winning all three. And he's two thirds of the way there. So, yeah, I, I think he will participate in Formula One to the extent that he can. But that his focus will be on fulfilling the third leg of that championship.
1: I, I don't see, and I'm sorry, I don't see any specific value to the Triple Crown, as in winning Monaco, which is uh, not the best race in the F1 calendar, winning Le Mans, okay, and then winning Indy. It's, it's, it reminds me of record breakers where they try and get into the Guinness Book of World Records and they would find little things that had not been done yet, like balancing twenty-five cups on your nose. It's it's like shooting at a barn door and then drawing the target on afterwards. He's seeing what is out there to be won and then when he does it, he's gonna draw a target around it and say, see, that makes me amazing. Sparkles.
3: No, no, you're entirely right. The the triple crown has always been the the biggest uh, and the, the biggest, most what? amazing accompli- uh, accomplishment.
1: Wait, 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 wait a minute. What? So, so better than winning four F one World Championships? You'd rather win the triple crown. More exclusive.
3: Oh yeah, no, exactly. Very exclusive. One other person has done the triple crown in okay, history. Okay, so you're so you're you're, you're really a
1: motorsport, you're a driver now. You're a a, a a racing car driver. I will offer you the triple crown or one F one World Championship. Which one do you take? i'll take the triple crown oh yeah steve amy which one do you take as a young driver triple crown or
4: one f1 world championship of course you take the f1 world championship i mean you've got to be kidding yourself if you think anything else
1: thank you very much and trumpets what would you take
2: as a young driver i take the championship assuming i would win more as alonzo i would take (laughs) i would i would i I would take the triple crown because only one other person has done it and from a marketing point of view that's better than either hamilton or vettel because they've both won the number same number of championships and neither one of them has won more than schumacher so done like a dinner
1: steve what does the chat room choose between those two great prizes
4: (laughs) well um uh, hang on a second. Uh, Christopher Fonseca has said, How is it? How is um, Alonso's victory actually a victory when there was no fair competition? How can you class it as that? He just drove around, which is fairly true. And I've got to say, I'm wondering how much team radio was on trying to um, convince the number seven car to drop back. I'd like to have heard that. Trumpets?
2: Uh, All I got to say is you have to watch what happened to Nakajima in 2016 to answer that question. Any win at Le Mans is a win, even if you were the only car on track for the 24 hours.
4: Back to the chat room. Corco Onoma says the Triple Crown would be his choice. Um, And so does Christopher Monsaka. And Trigger Williams says, no, he'll take the the Triple Crown. It proves that you can pretty much race anything, anywhere. Bonkers.
1: Right. Okay. I'm going to do one of my notorious Twitter polls. I can't believe that somebody said my Twitter polls are biased. So follow me at Spanners Ready and you will see a very neutral choice selection that won't be biased one way or the other. Let's move on to Sparkles.
3: Yeah. So, uh, EMH, uh, take, taking the triple crown shows excellence across open and closed wheel racing, sprint and endurance racing. If you have the Triple Crown, you're an excellent, versatile driver. And I also like the comment from Robert Sims that says he'll take a MotoGP and F1 like
1: 30s. (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, I like the comment from Rob Graham that says Matt is right on. What does that prove?
1: (laughs) You're not selecting comments from the chat room that simply agree with you, are you? Uh, That would be unheard of. All right, look, let's wrap up the show by looking forward to the, the championship battle that we've got coming up because yes, we've had two uninspiring races and yes we might have another one coming up but from a championship point of view we've got a fantastic narrative here this is one of the most open championships going and one of the most open championships i can remember where do we think it's going to go and who do we think has the best car now matt me and you have argued about this for the last few seasons generally you've argued that ferrari have the better car on any given race day uh, and Mercedes have a car that they can unlock the potential of but they can't get it to work from track to track I think it's too early to start panicking about Mercedes and Hamilton's form We've seen Monaco, where they don't tend to go well at all. We've seen a Canadian Grand Prix, where their number one driver had a power unit issue, had some cooling issues, had a bird in his duct. Or or let's say he's possibly off-form a little bit. Hamilton being off-form happens, as it does with every sportsman, but it it doesn't happen for very long. Uh, Yes, in 2011, that was the entire season. But apart from that, Hamilton does pick himself up from these slumps. I think if you look at Australia where they were dominant, um where you see uh, Spain where they were dominant with Lewis Hamilton, uh, Bahrain, China where they were very strong, I still think the Mercedes Hamilton package is the championship winning package for
2: 2018. Uh They could <laughs> win it. They could win it. Um I I would I would take exception. Um last year uh, Ferrari seemed to have come with a design that was more flexible and easier Across a wider variety of tracks. Mercedes had a faster design when they were on top of their setup and when the track characteristics suited them, which it did across a majority of the tracks. This year, I am less sanguine about Mercedes' design and ability to unlock. I am not really bothered by people talking about Hamilton's form because I don't think that has very much to do with it. And he's been there or thereabouts. Um, And I have, I think Ferrari by adjusting their wheelbase has given themselves a big advantage. And and I don't I have yet to see Mercedes really look like they're on top of the car in the way that they got last year. But that said, the season, relatively speaking, is in its earliest leg. So there's plenty of room for lots to happen.
3: Yeah, I'd uh second that a lot. I mean I think it's gonna switch every uh weekend depending on the car characteristics on upgrades reliability is a big thing that we're not going to see until the last third of the season probably so in a way it's a a little bit of a moot conversation at the moment but they're very closely they're very closely matched they're very closely matched and it does it fluctuates a lot on Lewis I think when the car hasn't quite been there for him it hasn't been a hundred percent it, it's leveled the playing field between him and, and Valtteri a, a little bit. And, and Lewis hasn't been able to get everything he can out of it. And and a way has made it look as if Valtteri can, can outperform him. But I, is that there on a consistent basis when the car is 100%? I don't quite think so.
1: Interesting to hear you say that. Now, Will Buxton has said, Matt, recently on the internet that he thinks that Valtteri Bottas is actually outperforming Lewis Hamilton this season. Do you agree?
2: Mm, How did he define outperforming? And I'll tell you.
1: Just is doing better than.
2: I think in terms of extracting their maximum performance from the machinery, I would agree with that. But I don't think that means that he's necessarily driving better or that Hamilton is necessarily slacking. I feel like the margins that Hamilton is trying to hit in order to drive fast when the car doesn't give it to him are penalizing him more than Botas. I think Botas is exquisitely good at driving at his limit and the car's limit. And he's very smart about where and how he finds time. And I think that Hamilton has a tendency, I don't want to say overdrive, but he has a tendency to continue to try and drive where the car is not going to give him what he's used to. And that, uh, yeah. that has penalized him this year.
1: I think you're absolutely right. And I think in general, that's why you sometimes see Hamilton suffering with the Pirelli tires that are designed to lose performance. Because the second they lose the performance, he's on the radio saying, tires have lost performance. Give me new tires. It's like, no, that, that is not a bug, Lewis. That is a feature of these tires. And you're supposed to just adapt to the fact that these tires are wearing. Everyone's having that same tire wear. But tell me if this is fair. I think the barometer for how well the Mercedes car is doing is basically you take Valtteri Bottas's performance and you add another 5%. Because I think that generally we've seen Lewis Hamilton firing on all cylinders, Valtteri Bottas just that little bit consistently off the pace. And then you sometimes see Lewis Hamilton just disappear. Now Valtteri Bottas isn't disappearing this season. So that's where I think you gauge the performance, which is why I argued after qualifying in Canada The fact that Valtteri Bottas was only a tenth of a second off of Vettel meant that there was probably another two or three tenths in the car. Uh,
2: Theoretically, there might have been. But again, based on your FP3 practice times, it was it was never going to happen that Mercedes was going to beat Ferrari. If you look at their times across the season, the uh, percentage improvement they were. In other words, the FP3 time says that Mercedes lacked the setup and weren't close enough to be able to get ahead.
1: Okay, but I think that that is in the context of Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, If Lewis Hamilton isn't performing, I don't think you can make that comparison because I think Lewis Hamilton has been inconsistent for one reason or another and that might be throwing those deltas off.
2: Uh, The reason he's been inconsistent is because of the car. And I would argue that it's very much Mercedes that is the problem here, much less so uh, Hamilton. And I would argue that uh, Bottas has done exactly what I expected him to do now that he's had input into the car and he's been there for a season, which is he he's he has stepped up and and been the teammate that they expected him to be uh, in terms of his performance. It's been very solid, very consistent. And if he lacks anything to Hamilton, it's it's at the outer edges of racecraft.
1: All right, and that's all. we're going to say goodbye. I'm going to get the top three predictions out of our three panelists, and myself here. But before we get their predictions, Matt, where can people find you on the internet? And I believe some congratulations is due to Mrs. Trumpets, whose books have been advertised on here so many times.
2: Yes, indeed. You can find me at MattPT55 on the internet. It's come tell me I'm wrong about Le Mans, just like I'm wrong about Formula One. And yes, a big shout out to the Mrs. at a Weaver AWeaverWrites has just more or less, Up or Down inked a three-book contract with Karina Press, if I've not gotten that wrong, for a contemporary series of romances set in Brooklyn. So, congratulations, all you race fans out there! You have new—you will soon have new shiny toys with which to distract your spouses while you watch the races in peace in your man caves.
1: And if Matt didn't mention it already, follow him at MattPT55. Who's your top three for the French Grand Prix?
2: A uh, battle Hamilton-Ricciardo. That's got to be it, man.
1: Wow, no room for Bottas on your podium.
2: Uh, well, you know, I it, again, it's the race thing. It's the race thing. I'm not convinced in traffic over a whole uh, length of the race that the Mercedes will be competitive, particularly if it's stuck in traffic.
1: Fair enough. Chris Stevens, where can people find you, son? You can find me on Twitter at
3: cstevens_jerno. underscore journo.
1: And what is your prediction for the French Grand Prix?
3: I'm going to rock the boat a little bit and say Vettel, Verstappen, Riccardo. I so, think Red Bull are going to be quite good around this circuit and not losing so much down that, that straight because they were quite good in, in Canada.
1: Wait, 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 no room for the Mercedes at all on the podium.
3: I don't think, uh, I, oh, thinner tires. <laughs> New I surface. don't know. That's what I love about this. Yes. That's it- what I love about this. Um, Oh, Mercedes could... It'll either be what I've just said, or it'll be Hamilton,
2: Bottas, Metal. Why do we even ask him?
1: I don't know. It's pointless, but it gives him a chance to plug stuff. Steve, Amy, you do all our video production and editing. We're very, very grateful because that is what you do for a living.
4: Well, that's what I try to do for a living. If I can find someone to pay me that uh, yeah i mean my my day gig is writing and directing and uh, television commercials and corporate videos and stuff and i edit cuz i can cuz these days the technology allows us to so that's it. that's about it great to have you from all the way on the wrong side
1: of the world who is your podium steve amy for the french grand prix
4: um i think it's going to be vettel uh a red bull and I guess my, you know, southern uh, hemisphere part of me yeah. says it's got to be Ricardo. And I think Hamilton will be third. Oh,
1: well, there we go. Well, I'm going for Hamilton, Bottas, Max Verstappen, and an utter disaster for Ferrari. But notice that none of us have put Kimi Raikkonen on the podium. Does anyone want to revisit that or predict where Kimi Raikkonen's finishing? No, I mean, why would you even bother? I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but why? but it's a shame. Like, because, I mean, it was the stat man, uh, Sean Kelly, last week, Matt pointed out that Kimi Raikkonen has the pace in each sector to have good qualifying results. It's if you're a Kimi Raikkonen fan right now, it
2: must be maddening. Yeah, well, it's not. It's not just qualifying. He's had some good qualifications, but just the uh, shall we say unrelenting focus of Ferrari strategy on Vettel first has really not served him well. And, you know, at a certain point, how hard should he really bother to work if he knows that he he will always finish down in the race uh, because they're just going to use him to cover off other people and not actually actively work to get him a win or a podium.
1: The biggest example is when you've got um, uh, a one-stop or when there's an emphasis on getting a a good stint on the first stint, or even an opportunity to move on to a quicker tyre and get an undercut, the amount of times Kimi Raikkonen is just left out on track with old and fading tyres, just so that he can slightly slow down one of the front-running Mercedes as they come through on quicker tyres. It is absolutely shocking. So anyway, we'll see, uh, hopefully for Kimi Räikkönen fans, he can get up uh, ahead of Vettel in qualifying and maybe that will give him enough of an advantage that Ferrari can't ignore him and will give him a fight for a win. However, is this the race for a Mercedes resurgence or will Ferrari continue to impress in 2018? Follow the show on Twitter at Missed Apex F1 also at Missed Apex F1 on Instagram I'm on Instagram also spanners ready until next time for our French Grand Prix review oh no that's not quite true we've also got Inside F1 with Joe Sayward tomorrow night and then the French Grand Prix review remember that wounds heal chicks dig scars and glory last forever this was Missed Apex go on chris say things
3: i forgot to plug the road trip again i'm going on the road trip with bradley philpot to the nurburgring this weekend it's going to be all over my twitter and instagram so go and check it out
2: i want to see i want to see the video of you actually throwing up in the car when he takes you on the on the ride
3: i will be getting that footage as quickly as i possibly can
1: uh, and uh, I've only been in a road car with Bradley philpot but he's not shy behind a steering wheel. I'll tell you that much. Steve Amy, we will leave this in the main audio and the video if you have a
0: comment of the week.
4: Oh, I think I can find one um, with a bit of luck. Give us some candidates uh, and then the winner. Okay. European says the Triple Crown equals the Pony Award plus the Missed Apex Award plus the Thing of the Week on a single podcast. Not bad. Yeah, that'll be all right. We haven't had anybody do that yet. Um, Jordan P uh, wants to know where he can go and subscribe for Music Time with Trumpets after Matt's little musical interlude that went on. Basically, if you buy Uh, Matt whiskey
1: in any Brooklyn bar, (laughs) you can be the little spoon. (laughs)
4: <laughs> and um, I think Stuart Neal has got to get it this week um, for his comment, and that is that mixed apex never wrong, at least for long.
0: Comment of the
4: week. We're out of here, guys.
1: See you for the French Grand Prix.